0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 461st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And for those of you tuning in, we are recording this episode in front of an audience of film lovers at the stunning Resort at Pelican Hill as part of the Newport Beach Film Festival. My guest today was also my guest on the second episode of this podcast seven years ago, and I'm so delighted to have him back. A British actor who is only 40, he has already amassed an incredible body of work on the stage and screens, big and small, and has to his name an Oscar, a Tony, a Golden Globe, a BAFTA award, and as of just a couple of months ago, two Olivier Awards. In terms of his work in film, he is, of course, best known for his performance as Dr. Stephen Hawking in 2014's The Theory of Everything, but also for memorable turns in 2011's My Week with Marilyn, 2012's Les Miserables. 2015's The Danish Girl, 2020's The Trial of the Chicago 7, and the Fantastic Beasts film series spanning 2016 through 2022. And he is currently receiving some of the best reviews of his career for his portrayal of a hospital co-worker of Jessica Chastain's in Tobias Lindholm's The Good Nurse, which recently had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, will screen at this film festival later today, and will begin streaming on Netflix on October 26th. If you are not already one, I assure you that you will leave here today a certified Red Maniac. Would you please join me in welcoming to the Newport Beach Film Festival, Eddie Redmayne. Morning. <laughs> Thank you, Glasgow. That was Thank a you. very um, generous introduction. It's <laughs> great to see you. Great to have you. Thank you for coming. And just a personal note, since I mentioned that we had you on the podcast seven years ago, that was before we had arrived at the format that we've had for the last several hundred, where we go through a distinguished guest's whole kind of life and career in an hour as much as we can. And um, you don't make it easy because you've packed a lot into 40 years, but we're going to give it a go. So as always, just to begin, if you wouldn't mind sharing, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
1: Firstly, morning. Well, I've, I've never had a conversation with such a staggering view in my life. Yeah, right. <laughs> The amount of, uh, yeah, the California dream is being lived here right now. Um, I grew up in London. Uh, my parents and my family were not in any way in, in this world. My dad worked in finance. Um, my mum was a stay-at-home mother. She then worked in relocation. I had several brothers and a sister my brother's incredibly sporty. Uh, I sadly lack that gene. Uh, and so from a kind of young age, music actually in theater was a big part of my life. And I always look back on it that, to my parents' credit, even though they didn't know a huge amount about this, they, anything that I showed an interest in, they supported and were a, a passionate sort of um, well, they, they would open doors to going to classes. Anything I showed an interest to, and, and now as a parent of young kids myself, trying to trying to do the same.
0: Yeah. Well, when we talk about starting at a young age, I believe it was ten that you began attending the Jackie Palmer Stage School, which is somewhere that you continued even after going off to uh, boarding school and elsewhere. I've read things that your teachers said about you there that it was evident even at 10 that you had something special. And in fact, by just two years later, you were on the West End, right? Yeah, so the, the Jackie Palmer Stage School
1: is, uh, it was a, a, a stage school and a, a little agency in a place called High Wycombe, just outside of London. And there would be theatre classes and dance classes there. And every year, there was a theatre called the Wycombe Swan, and they would do a sort of showcase. And at the time, I suppose, more more so than acting, like singing was the thing that I, I enjoyed. And so... Every year I would go, and normally I would sort of go on stage and sing, like, Memory from Cats or something. And there were various other young actors <laughs> and people all trying to do the thing, one of whom was a guy uh, who was very good at street dance, um, whose name was James Corden. <laughs> and so uh, J- James and I first met there, uh, which was wonderful, and it's been amazing seeing you know, his work over the years. But it's horrendous now because it means that every time I do go on his talk show, which happened only two days ago, you know, whenever you go on these talk shows, they, they look for embarrassing, humiliating <laughs> stuff, but, but normally they check it with you. They check that you're okay to be humiliated like right. this. James just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> he like, and, and he knows where the vault of embarrassment lies, and so, which he succeeded in doing just two day, a few days ago. So I, for one, am thrilled that he is stopping his talk show Right, <laughs> going back to <laughs> um, but no, this, this this stage school was run by one called Marilyn, and she was passionate. Um, they, they they sort of filled all of the London West End shows with their kids, and and Aaron Taylor Johnson was also there. And um, but but it was there that I got yeah the first job in in uh, as one of several hundred workhouse boys in Oliver,
0: directed by.
1: Well, directed by this young upstart (laughs) called Sam (laughs) Mendes. But uh, it was an odd scenario because I was playing um, like Workhouse Boy number 30 or whatever it was. Um, I wasn't even in Fagin's Gang, which uh, is saying something given that Fagin's Gang is filled with children and I somehow didn't quite get that part. But it meant that I got to leave school every... Day and in the middle of maths class, I would sort of get up and leave my ten-year-old friends and and go on the tube across London to um, the London Palladium by Oxford Circus, one of the great old Victorian theatres, and walk in through the stage door there, and it was staggeringly seductive. It was people that were passionate about what they did it was lights it was costumes it was um it was jonathan price was playing fagin and it was in this production directed by <coughs> oh hello hi Kip. <laughs> um uh played by uh, so sam mendes was directing it but i was also like the second or third children's cast and the cast got changed quite often so for many years sam's name remained on my CV, but I'd never actually met Sam Mendes. And it was only only when I had an audition with him about 15 years later that I realized I should probably cross his name off or take that off my CV. Because he'd
0: be like, oh, I've directed you. I have no idea who you are. Um, yeah. Well, so eventually you go off to boarding school. Is Eden is the way you say it? That's right, yeah. Great, yeah. Uh, I have read that you were in class there with the future King of England, Prince William. But more importantly, your second year there somebody else showed up who I gather has, was and remains a big influence in your life. Who was, who is Simon Dormandy? So Simon Dormandy um,
1: is an amazing man. I, I think, you know, the power of teachers and inspiring teachers uh, is not lost on me. He he arrived, he was had been a, a very successful actor himself. He'd worked with Simon Russell Beale a lot on stage. He was a theatre actor primarily. And he arrived to teach, to be head of drama at Eton. And he'd never taught really before this. And so he arrived and treated us like professionals. Um, as in the rehearsal room was the closest to... It's what he sort of... Taught what he knew, and so he was very ambitious theatrically. And he taught me how to speak verse, and I was cast in um, as Adela Quested in a, a Passage to India, uh, and then in 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 sort of Henry the these big uh, plays. But they were always really stunning kind of interpretations um, by 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 our director, and and that was really where. Uh, so firstly, someone that that taught and inspired, but also was passionate. Um, it, it's where the bug moved from being something that I love doing to something that I saw as a craft and something that took work and process and interrogation. Uh, so yeah, he was very inspiring.
0: I might be reading more into this than than is actually there, but my sense is that when you were finishing up with essentially high school and figuring out what do I do now to, um, in terms of a, a path, there was not a, there was not a pursuit of drama school, even though you were clearly into drama. Sometimes people feel outside pressures to do more of the responsible thing or whatever. You wound up at Cambridge, which is no, uh, no slouch, uh, at, at all, but it was not fully going after drama. However, you got it, you, you attended on a, scholarship, a choral scholarship. So you were, I guess, within the system of non-drama schools still finding a a lane to remain involved with performance. So take me into that whole moment in terms of figuring out what you wanted to do, what was the responsible thing to do, all of that.
1: Well, you know, having said my parents were very supportive, yeah. which they were, um, I think it's also... It's an intimidating thing as a parent when your kids have an interest in something that you know, particularly is particularly as a precarious industry. And, and my dad is good with statistics, and he he would sort of gently reaffirm the statistics of the amount of people that wanted to be actors and and the the, the scarcity of parts. <laughs> right. um, and so it was generally like the, the passion was encouraged, but at the same point it was like maybe go get a degree first. <laughs> and, and I um. I also love art, and I I love history of art and so I applied to Cambridge Street history of art um, I was singing a lot, music was still a part of my life and I got a, a choral scholarship there and I also thought that you know Cambridge had this history and legacy of of sort of creating or not creating but people, actors I admired, Emma Thompson you know Stephen Fry lots of these, uh, there had been this generation of actors who had um, had gone there so I went and I but the interesting thing was is that when I was at school, you were able to juggle all the things that you were interested in, whether it was music or sport or art, and, and suddenly on a choral scholarship at Cambridge, because their choral reputation is so um, extreme, King's College, Cambridge, Trinity, John's, that when, you, when you're a choral scholar there, you're a professional singer. You're touring the world, you're, you're singing even song three, four times a week, five times a week. Um, and so there's not much room for anything else. And I remember being a bit shocked by that. And so when I was trying to do theatre, I remember I did a production of 42nd Street. And, but I would have to be dressed in my costume underneath the cassock. You know, and you'd do Evensong and then sort of run off ripping off there and go and go and do a play you know, straight <laughs> after. Um, so I, uh, when I realised that those two things weren't going to mesh, I actually gave up the choral scholarship after a year. Amazingly, that coincided with a moment when it was, it was the 400th anniversary of Twelfth Night, and Twelfth Night had been commissioned by this, this building in London called the Middle Temple Hall, which is like a, an ancient lawyer's inn in London, and back in the day they had commissioned, these lawyers had commissioned Shakespeare to write this play for them, specific to this hall and the architecture of this hall. Four hundred years on, the Middle Temple, which is still the Lawyers' Inn, commissioned the n- newly founded Globe Theatre, which um, Mark Rylance was running, to put on a commemorative production, an all-male production, as had been original practices. And they, the casting director for that, was looking around to try and find an actor to play Viola. Mark was going to play Olivia, and they were looking for that both Viola, basically, an, an all-male
0: Male. production. Yeah, exactly uh,
1: that. Yeah. yeah, and so they. They called up actually the uh, my teacher from, from school. Simon Dormady. Simon Dormady, exactly. Yeah. And Simon said, look, I can't give you the names of any kids who are here because they can't leave school, but I can give you the names of some people who've re- left recently. So I got this call. I went and I auditioned. Um, I was quite used to playing um, women's parts because I'd been at an all-boys school. And I did that audition and I thought nothing of it. And then I was... In a pub in Notting Hill with some friends, quite drunk, and I got a call saying, Where are you now? And I was like, Oh, I'm in London. (laughs) They were like, will you come now for a, a recall for Twelfth Night? And I was like, yeah, I've got this. And I turned up and I was put in a rehearsal skirt and Mark was there and we started reading the scenes and nerves weren't there because I was, you know, three quarters of a bottle of wine in. And um, and then suddenly Mark took the script out of my hand and started improvising or have me improvise Shakespeare, which looking back on was a horrendous prospect. Uh, But fortunately, again, I I had some Dutch courage. And so through that, I got cast in that play. I went back to Cambridge and I said, look, there's this amazing opportunity. Could I do it? And they were very generous and said, look, provided you hand your essays in every week, you're fine to take a term off to go and do it. And I had this incredibly romantic time. I was... We were rehearsed at the Globe Theatre. They have voice coaches, they have verse coaches, they have movement coaches. So I I see that as kind of my education, my drama school in some ways. And then during the day, once the play was up, I went to this place called the Courtauld Institute in London, one of the great art history and, and institutes and would write essays during the day. And then in the evening go and play Viola opposite, like one of our greatest actors and, and it was the dream, really. And it was through that that I got an agent. And
0: yeah. I was going to say, so now, you know, the the hardest, the most intimidating thing I would imagine about going out into the real world after graduating, you've, you've got handled, you've got your agent. But now, after graduating in 2003, now you've got to go find some work. And as I understand it from a recent guest on the podcast, Jamie Dornan, you... He, I believe Andrew Garfield there was a little circle of these not yet working actors who were very close buds and living how how would you describe?
1: Well, it- the answer was there was a few years in between, which was just trying to get work, was working in pubs, um, doing, I got a few roles in sort of regional theatre, uh, I was lucky enough to do a play or two in London, and through one of those plays I got my, um, was attended by a man called Josh Lieberman and his wife, Mariam, they recently married, I was doing a play at the Donmar Warehouse, and Mariam and I got talking And I had no idea what world they were from. And basically, Josh was a a wonderful and extraordinary agent who took me on from doing theatre. He's based here in LA. So suddenly, it was like, you're coming to Los Angeles. And I was staying either at Josh's house or then gradually my friends, as you say, Andrew, um, Charlie Cox, Tom Sturridge, Jamie, we were all coming out. and, And it would be coming to, you know, we were sort of it's the cliche, but it's aspiring for the Hollywood dream. You know, we had had moments of success in in London and often we would all come over to this part of the world in January for pilot season, um, when it was basically pissing with rain in London. <laughs> and and we would come and we, we all of us look back on it now. I actually was with Andrew last night and we I, I this this uh, Los Angeles is flooded with nostalgia for me. Um, because we would we would go up for these auditions for parts that were ridiculous like I remember sort of auditioning for 10,000 BC in which I was having to play someone from sort of Egypt who ran around in a loincloth sort of (laughs) topless and I was like have you even seen what I look like but you did it because you just were trying for everything and anything and 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 also but it was a real lesson in like a lot of my closest friends were actors and we would go up against each other for things and there was that level of of sort of Competition, and uh, but it was also wonderful because it is an odd job. This like it's endless ups and downs, and highs and lows, and oscillations, and and learning to sort of that feeling when you don't get a part that you fought pretty hard for, and the disappointment in that, but then that lovely feeling when at least someone you love gets it, um, became something that you know like I'd I'd worked with enough older actors, to to see that there something else can creep in. Which is that you're on a list, you know, and that list, you can be at the top of it for a minute and then you're falling down, and, and then suddenly someone else comes up. And, and that thing of being, finding truth in friendship amongst
0: this very competitive um, world was, was really important. So, just for, just for fun, can you tell us were there any roles that, that other members of your circle ended up getting? that you had also gone out for, or vice versa? I mean, hundreds. hundreds. Yeah. What's the most notable um, examples? Uh,
1: I remember auditioning very hard for a, a film called Lions for Lambs, yeah. which, which Andrew got. I mean, I, was sort of, I sort of auditioned about a thousand times for various different parts in different Spider-Man movies. <laughs> Never got <a> sniffed. <laughs> um But I do remember many years later, when, when Andrew was doing um, Spider-Man, I screen tested to play uh harry osborne part that dane Hahn did but then again the in the last screen test there was sort of it was sam claflin who was a pal like various other th- and 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 we were auditioning with andrew you know it's it so surreal these these sorts of moments but but also there are you know there are things that like the theory of everything was an interesting one because it was it was a it was a part that um various people had turned down and and, and, and you, you have to believe in fate in this industry and, and there are moments when you know those parts that you didn't get, or the parts that people that you know all that, that, the parts that you turned down that end up being interesting, you know that were for a reason. Right.
0: So let's talk about one of the earliest screen jobs because it involves another person who's going to come back into this story multiple times. This is around 2005 British two-part TV series, Elizabeth I, directed by Tom Hooper. How did, I, it, it, what's funny is that obviously there is a special relationship there because of how many times you keep finding each other. However, it kind of got off on the wrong foot or, or hoof, we might say, right? <laughs> I don't like
1: where this conversation is going. (laughs) That's cue for me to tell a PTSD story. Um, So I was auditioning for Everything and Anything. Um, There was a a television series being made about Elizabeth I with Helen Mirren and Jeremy Irons and Hugh Dancy and this young director, Tom Hooper, was directing it. And I went for various auditions to play the Earl of Southampton, who was a sort of very vain, flamboyant fop. Um, And... I did my various auditions, and then on the last audition, as I was leaving the room, Tom said, one last thing, um, have you been on a horse? And I said, yes. And he said, good. Didn't, didn't think anything of it. Um, I had been on a horse <laughs> when I was four, <laughs> being <laughs> led around a paddock by, you know, um, uh, I, I was either green enough or stupid enough to not realize that if that happens, I was then cast as this part, that, that if you lie like that in an audition, you then in the three weeks between when you do the thing and then have to get on a horse, you probably go and learn, you like take a few lessons something some synapse in my brain just didn't consider that so i found myself in lithuania we were shooting you know vilnius lithuania was passing for elizabethan england and there was a moment when on that they built this elizabethan street It was a cobbled, long, long cobbled street. There were huge, gigantic cranes with rain machines. There was a balcony at the end where Helen Mirren dressed in all her finery. You know, Toby Jones, I'll not forget. um, uh, Jeremy Irons was standing there. Hundreds of background extras. I was at the other end with Hugh Dancy being placed on this... A massive stallion. I was having spurs attached to my feet. There were 23 Lithuanian horse stuntmen behind me. And it was at that moment (laughs) (laughs) that I began to regret not having... But I was too... having, Or basically having lied. But I was, at that point, as you can imagine, too far in to do anything about it. And so they call action. And I give this horse a nudge with my spurs. And we're meant to be manning a coup attempt. We're meant to charge down this thing. And charge we did. (laughs) Because I ended up just clinging on to dear life, covering my arms with one hand, hurtling through. These carriages were meant to be coming the other way. They were sort of spinning off to one side. Rain machines were collapsing. Like, it, it was a complete... Shit show. And Tom Hooper emerged from behind Helen Mirren with a big loudspeaker and said, You're a fucking liar, Redman. And um and it was dismal. And then you're right. Like I worked with Tom again a couple of years later on on um on Les Miserables. Yep. And there was a um there was a he basically put in, in Les Miserables, this scene in which my character, after this sort of, like, like uh, after the song, do you hear the people sing this big funeral march that there's a sort of revolution starts, and, and he basically wrote it into the script that I leap from a kind of gigantic hearse onto this horse without <laughs> anything, grab a, grab a, um, a, a flag, and charge through the interior of a building. <laughs> And I was like, "Really?" And he was like, "Yes," <laughs> like, uh, with a with a sort of horrendous smile as he was saying, which was which was basically punishment. Um, and and I did that, but it was around that time that I, my wife and I got together, and my wife, it transpires, is an amazing rider, and I was now not going to make this mistake twice so I in prep for Le Rab, I went and really did some horse training like quite hardcore training amazing woman called Camilla and and I was going to show Tom Hooper I like had pummels on now and I did I was running and, and leaping up onto this horse whilst it was you know whilst it was running and you know and, and I was so impressed with myself <laughs> and, I, and I took took a video and I was trying to court my wife who I knew was really into riding and I sort of sent this video I I am just Doing some some horse riding. <laughs> and she just responded back, going, It's riding, Eddie. Like, and it's like you know, this idea of like horseback right. riding. And she was like, It's it's just called riding, right. mate. Like if you're a real horseman, you don't call it horseback riding. Anyway, so that didn't work either. Uh it was big. But so yeah, riding has some um, has become a bit of a thing. Now, but it transpires because Hannah rides a lot now, and she even is you know trying to encourage me to have my own horse and and I've begun to think I'm okay at riding, but it transpires I'm only really good at riding extraordinarily trained <laughs> stunt horses that know exactly how to hit a mark. They, you know, so I've been given a full <laughs> sense of um, security.
0: Well, that—that uh, that was a re-
1: really long story. About no, horses, it's good. Guys. It's <laughs> great.
0: It's great. Uh, so after that initial 2005 Elizabeth the uh, First, what I guess would would call like a limited series on TV, you start working in films really for the first time and I'll just mention a few titles and also note that it, you're almost out of the gate with uh, <laughs> out of the gate back to horses but um, with with unbelievable collaborators first movie 2006 like minds you and Tony Collette 2006 the good shepherd directed by Robert De Niro Elizabeth the first golden age 2007 with Kate Blanchett savage grace 2007 with Julianne Moore Yellow Handkerchief 2008 with Kristen Stewart. I wondered if there were any major lessons that you learned from that period. I mean, what's interesting is that, as, you know, just sort of thematically or or whatever, you were playing some pretty dark roles, uh, dark characters as well in those days, something that we'll come back to with uh, The Good Nurse when when we get to that. But I guess just when you think back to those early sort of formative years in film, what stands out to you?
1: The interesting thing is, like, when I hear those films, that formative is is right, because I had come from theatre, I hadn't gone to drama school, I didn't know anything about film or film acting, and for years I just didn't get any parts because I would do these a- a- auditions and... and Well, an example is, like mine, is this film that I did with Tony Collette, and the director said to me it was my first film and he said you know he was Australian we shot it in Australia and he was like you know you're not allowed to watch a playback you know and I was like okay great good 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 and I arrive in Australia and I'm playing this psycho kid and Tony Collette is playing my psychologist and she and I do our first scene and we're um we're doing this scene for an hour or so and then Tony goes Eddie should we go and watch a playback and I'm like oh no I'm not allowed I'm not allowed to. Do it. she goes no Come watch playback. Come on, she was just so generous. I was like, no, really. The director said, "I'm like." She's like, Eddie, come and watch playback. <laughs> and thank God she did because what I saw was an actor projecting to the back of the stalls. You know, my face was like it was, and, and, and it, it was horrendous. You know, but that formative, that those years were about learning. And and you're you're absolutely right that it, from the out of the gate, I was so lucky to work with extraordinary actors. And and. And it was about trying to glean from them not only their processes, and my God, there are different processes, but also how they lived. Like how you reconcile the oddness of this circus-like existence with doing the best work that you can, trying to have a, a life, a family, when however much however much success you have or however much, I suppose, power you have, you you're still beholden to... to to the location, the script, the timing. You you know, there is an element of you're not in charge. And so it was a riveting period. There was also moments where like little practical things like, um, so working with De Niro, for example, he as a director worked how he liked to work as an actor, which was he would keep the camera rolling in emotional scenes. And when you like when you got to the end, to the emotional extremes of a scene, he would keep the camera rolling and ask you to bottle it and go back to the beginning. And, and, and he would layer up these uh, the emotion through takes, which pushed you to somewhere other. And that certainly is a technique that, I mean, very specifically, I reused or asked Tom to do on with Empty Chairs and Empty Tables in, in, in Les Miserables, but also in The Goodness with Tobias Lindholm, um, the film that is coming out now. And, and so there are definitely specific things that you take from there.
0: Interesting. So as this is all getting going for a screen career, you get an opportunity to go back to the stage for Michael Grandage in... Uh, Red, which is a show that was both on West End and then in on Broadway, um, you're playing essentially a composite of the assistants of Mark Rothko, and in a in an interesting way, I think by going back to the stage and blowing people away with this performance, which I'll know brought you an Olivier and a Tony Award. Do you feel like that actually then opened up? new opportunities in film because it seems like after that it went to a whole different level.
1: There's a, there's probably a truth in that. Like the thing that I found amazing was actors you know, people always say, oh you know, theatre is like a real sort of the acting muscle and, you know, and, and you must keep going back to it. And the thing that I found actually was having started out in theatre and then gone into to film and then coming back to theatre with red is that film had educated me. I actually the feeling of On stage, you'd felt that you had to emotionally project, but the second that a camera is scrutinizing everything, you realize that if you are inhabiting it, however big the space, an audience will be drawn in. Um, So by the time I did Red, which was one of the great experiences of my life, uh, getting to work with... Alfred Molina, who is, I think, not only one of the great actors but great humans, on a, a subject matter. I studied history of art at university. It was everything with Michael Grandage directing it. It was, it was truly one of the great, great times, and also the the power of Broadway. Like I hadn't, you know, the the play played in in London, and then when it came to to Broadway, we started with, you know, there is that thing on Broadway that you can close within days, you know, that, that's really real and true. And I remember there being a lot of anxiety at the top that no one was coming to see the show. And but gradually through word of mouth it built and then the reviews were lovely. And and you felt that extraordinary feeling, which if you're in a, a, a sort of a, a hit on Broadway, that the whole city opens up in this dumbfounding way. And I got to meet amazing people like this extraordinary thing that happens in America that doesn't happen in, in London that every time someone sort of who's an actor or director uh, comes to watch the play, it's sort of rude if they don't come round, even if you don't know them. Do you see what I mean? So it's, it's not a... Uh, it's not... Uh, whereas in London, if you know an actor, you might go and say hi, but, but, but in America... It's, and so I got to meet some amazing, um, amazing people. Who stands
0: um, out the most in
1: your memory? I remember having done uh, quite a... a a shoddy show, and a feeling, you know, that because you, um, and uh, and wanting to skulk downstairs, and and Fred Molina sort of grabbing me and said, "Eddie, come, come meet my friend Steve and Spielberg," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, fuck, really, really?" Um, uh, but um, no, every night it was it was someone. Um, dumbfounding and and there's this amazing bar bar centrale nearby where you would go and uh, all lots of actors from the different shows would come That, that there's something in the geography of broadway with all the theaters packed next to each other that means you're literally lined up and you back on to the same space so our play red shared a back alley with Lucy Liu, um, who was in a play, and uh, and like the Phantom of the Opera. So you were sort of, you would see like the Phantom having a quick cigarette while he was around. <laughs> and, and then this other amazing thing that happened, which is really beautiful. There's this thing on Broadway called Last Dress Rehearsal at the Gypsy Run. It's called, and it happens the day before you you play for an audience, and it's in the afternoon, and. Everyone on Broadway is invited to watch for free because they're not going to be able to watch your show otherwise because you all have the same schedule. And I remember going on to do the play and Fred Molina turning to me and going, this will be the most generous audience you have ever experienced. And it it was. And I was sort of new to New York. And afterwards, as I left, there was a little note that had been written and it said... Dear Eddie, uh, my name's Zoe, Uh, my boyfriend Paul and I, uh, actors, I'm in the play next door. We came and saw this. You know, if you ever fancy like hanging out, like, um, and it was Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano. And they left their number. And Zoe always says this, like, I didn't play it cool. Like I, I admired their work massively. By the way, I didn't play a call. It was like three and a half seconds. Later. I was like, "Hi, I'm here. Do you want to <laughs> have some um, coffee?" But it's where like great friendship started. And through you know Zoe and Paul introduced me to their friends in New York, and I met Jeremy Strong around that period. This whole crew of New York theater actors, um,
0: yeah. Special. And type. I'll just quickly note that every person you just named, you're going to see on the circuit this year because Zoe's in, Zoe's great, and she said. Uh, Paul's great in The Fablemans, Jeremy Strong's great in Armageddon Time, and you, of course, in The Good Nurse. So wow. it, it's you guys kind of do actually come up together, that kind of a community.
1: It's a, a, a lovely thing. When you start out acting, it's odd, because when you do your first job, like when you, you know, if you go to Australia or Lithuania or somewhere, you the, these people become your family. And then you go to the next one, and... And you're like, wait, they're my family. Where have they gone? Like, and, and you don't see them for years. And one actor told this beautiful story, which is like the, the classic thespian British thing of calling each other darling. You know, they're like, darling, darling, this. And they, they said, basically what happens is you make a film with someone, you are there with them in... Hungary and Budapest when their wife is pregnant, when their first kid goes to nursery, when they, you know, something happens, they go through a divorce, like these extraordinarily intense moments in people's lives. And you become genuinely close, fast friendships because you, you are having, when you're working, to trust each other and you love that person. And then you don't see them for 10 years because your thing takes <laughs> them off. And you suddenly meet them at some other thing. And it's that person that you love. And you can remember everything about their divorce, their thing, but you can't for the life if you remember their name. <laughs> and so, so, so that's sort of like, so darling, it's like right, this actor right. said it stems from this thing of like really genuine affection. Right, right. but, but there's something. That, and I remember it being quite traumatic to begin with. Going, wait, these people are my real friends, and why don't I see them anymore? Which well, could say more about me than <laughs> that. But like But what's lovely about people like um Zoe Paul, Carrie, um, you know, is that when you if you're lucky enough to stay in this job for a while, you know, things go around and come around and you get to work with people again and you get to, or even with Jessica Chastain, who I work with in The goodness, you know, we had met each other years ago at a children's film festival and always had this friendship. And suddenly years later, you get to work I knew her well, husband. Well, you and
0: Felicity, Felicity before Jones, exactly. your two movies had, exactly. right? So not to get ahead of ourselves. So, but what we were saying was that with all the acclaim and awards and everything with Red, now you come back to working in film and let's just note the uh, very soon after that is My Week with Marilyn, and we'll just remind people you're playing Colin Clark, this gopher at Pinewood Studios who had a, a kind of memorable, brief relationship of, of hard-to-define relationship of sorts, of sorts <laughs> with Marilyn Monroe, who in this case is play, was played by Michelle Williams. This was during the making of a 1957 movie, uh, The Prince and the Showgirl, which was shot at Pinewood. Now Eddie and Michelle Williams go to work in the very same soundstage, I believe, at Pinewood, and along with Sir Kenneth Branagh. Talk about talk about that one, and I think a lot of people who maybe hadn't seen the theatre work or some of these smaller independent movies up to that point, this is where they first said, who is this guy? It,
1: it was an amazing... Um opportunity that film and Simon Curtis directed it I'm always grateful for him for that it was it was riveting to to be a part of because there was an element of sort of life imitating art in the sense that Michelle had a voice coach, a, a movement coach, every, every te- an acting coach every technique that Marilyn Monroe had had, she decided to page. you had a Dame Judi Dench playing Dame Sybil Thorndyke Dame Sybil Thorndyke, one of the great doyens of British theatre and film who was just so lovely that no one behaved badly when she was around, which is exactly what Judi Dench is. Um, you had you know Ken playing a Lawrence Olivier, as you said, we were shooting in Pinewood. There was a great Pinewood passing for Pinewood. There was a great uh, romance to it. Even we shot in the house that Marilyn had actually stayed in while she was making that movie. It was was an extraordinary thing. It was, if I'm being really honest, also a complex thing. It was uh, produced by Harvey Weinstein, who made it very clear to me very early on that he didn't want me in the movie. Um, And he came to set, I remember, on day two and told me to stop moving my face so much, uh, which means when I look back on that film, all I can see is me going, terrified and going, I'm just trying, okay. trying not to move my face. Uh, so, so, it, But also, after that film, I, I felt so grateful for that part that I actually didn't fight for the part. Like, the, the, the way it was written, Colin was very much a conduit for the audience. And that was all fair and good, but I didn't, retrospectively, had I had more confidence, which I only got a few years on, I would have fought more for for character in him. Um, I spent
0: most of that film trying not to get in the way. A year after that, you're back with Hooper on uh, Les Miserables playing Marius, the, um, who's who's probably most memorable moment in the film is I would say maybe empty chairs and and empty tables. Um, uh, That number and in fact I believe was that's part of how you demonstrated to to Hooper that this is not another horse situation I actually, I can sing. (laughs) It was an odd one when you know someone but you also, I don't
1: know if Tom knew that I enjoyed singing Um, I also had known this piece since I was a kid and I, what I was I was actually making a film w- in North Carolina with um, Chloe Moretz, and I knew that they were making this, and I decided one day I was dressed as a as a Texan meth cowboy, and I, in my trailer in the Willy Bago, I went and just self taped myself singing, <laughs> empty chairs, and empty tables, and sent it to the casting director because I, di- I didn't want there to be any awkwardness for Tom being like, that's awful, like, you know, that's a, and so and 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 then Tom called me in, and it became like a big process. Um, Obviously it was less intimidating because it was someone I knew and I knew, you know, that Tom is honest and he's going to speak truth. Um, but then by the end, it was also, it was like something out of American Idol or something. You had the, the composer Claude Michel, you had the uh, the lyricist Alain Boubile, you had Cameron McIntosh, all of them lined up
0: behind a, uh, behind a kind of, you know, big table and you were having to do it. But not to mention that you would ultimately be doing this with Hugh Jackman, who's exactly, no exactly. No
1: but the amazing thing about that film was that even though it was you know, filled to the brim with quite brilliant actors... This technique of singing live, so we had these earwigs in that we would, uh, this woman, amazing woman called Jen, would play silently on an electric piano into our ears. So she would have monitors in front of her, and as we slowed or moved, she would adjust to our um, performance, and that would then be replaced by an orchestra in uh, retrospectively Because this technique was something that none of us had done before, it was a great leveler. So you were working with these actors that were extraordinary, but we were all doing something that felt new. And Jen, who is the sort of unsung hero of of Les Miserables, actually, I got to work with again this year on Cabaret. She Uh, was our musical director on Cabaret. So there's been a lovely sort of full circle there.
0: I think beginning shortly after Les Mis was what's gotta be one of the greatest adventures of your life, I'm sure in the, in the lead up to it, was uh, probably a pretty daunting thing to get involved with, but obviously turned out incredibly well. And that is The Theory of Everything, directed by James Marsh, released in 2014. You're playing the great Stephen Hawking, uh, opposite Felicity Jones as his wife Jane, and looking at this complex relationship that they had when they married, I believe he was told he had two years to live, Wound up living until 2018, when you spoke at his funeral. But I mean, this was this was a, a huge undertaking to physically, emotionally. I, I know for you to play this this man, and um, and as you said earlier, what's interesting to me is that a lot of people had the chance to play it and did not. Why did you quite aggressively go after it? Because when
1: I read Anthony McCartan's script, every time I read it, I'd end up in tears. There was something so profound about this relationship and the complexity of this relationship. It wasn't sort of the happy ending, but it was, I thought it was so unusual and so specific. And on a human level, I found that intriguing, let alone playing someone who was as extraordinary as he was. so it was one of those things where you fought uh, for the, the, the part, but then there is this other thing that happens when you get a part like that that you have a moment of extraordinary glee that you, you're you followed about three and a half seconds later by complete terror. Um, but the terror, w- w- you know... I mean, you only had four months to get it together, Right. Yeah, but that's that w- that that's what this part did, and it was actually looking in some ways to how Michelle had played Marilyn, uh, you know. As far as giving myself the infrastructure to to approach it, I needed the time. I needed a voice coach. I needed. I work, started working with a dancer, a woman called Alexandra Reynolds, and she and I went together to ALS clinics, and you know, families would let us. You know, into their homes to experience what the ramifications of the disease was not only on the patient but on the on the families, um, and it it was you know part of what we do as actors is get to access different stories and different worlds and different people, and beyond the job, it's an amazing thing because you get to meet extraordinary people and hear about their lives and
0: and. Um, n- Never was that more extraordinary than on Theory of Everything. One of the things that I think many people in the business or adjacent to the business know, but some other listeners may not know, is that movies are not shot in sequence in terms of, you know, you don't shoot it from the beginning to the end, which on certain projects has got to be brutal for an actor. I mean, here, obviously, the decline that people experience from ALS... Is very much in sequence, you might one day be shooting the very end of the the story that you guys are telling, and then the next day back to the beginning, and then somewhere in the middle. How did you account for that so that there was sort of a cohesion to the way you were playing it? It's an interesting question about process, really. And again, I don't know if it's some sort of
1: insecurity about not having gone a drama school not that i think drama school dictates a process honestly but like each job and the specifics of that job dictate a process and you're absolutely right here on theory of everything i knew that the first two days of filming we were shooting the exteriors in cambridge because it was just before the students came back to university and Therefore, any scene that takes place outside in Cambridge was going to be shot in those two days, on our first two days. And that was playing Stephen at aged 19 to in his 50s, a completely different, all within the first day, actually, the various different stages in his life. So, and I couldn't go back going like... Can't we shoot chronologically? Because you can't just lock down Cambridge for like, when you when you feel like. So that, that it wasn't an option. But what it did was dictate what the process was. So I, that's when I started working with Alex, the the dancer, because I felt like I had to be able to find the various moments of in Stephen's life physically. I had to be able to find them quickly, um, and so I learnt the physicalities. As, as dance almost. I also didn't want to ever, by the time we were filming, to ever be playing a physicality. I, I wanted to be playing opposite the extraordinary Felicity Jones. And and so what that meant was I spent those months working on those different moments um, and, and, and making sure that I could access
0: them quite quite quickly. And just one other note, I mean, when you're playing somebody who not only really existed, which you've done numerous times, including the one that followed this, the Danish girl, which we'll come to, but somebody who's still alive and is likely to see your performance, that might add an extra level of stress to something, I imagine. And in fact, you did meet Stephen Hawking, but five days before you guys actually went to work. So, I mean, after all this other prep that you've done, that was that even, do, was a part of you saying like, I, I don't even want to do this.
1: Uh, wow, well, <laughs> that's quite observant. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so,
0: Theory of Everything
1: was based on Jane Stephen's um, ex wife's book. It was her story. And so, it was always kept blurry to me whether Stephen had given his permission. Um, so when I met him, I could feel there was a sense of, yeah, Stephen wants to meet you, but I could feel the sort of producers being like... And I, I wasn't interrogating it too much when I went to meet him. And by this point in his life, he had glasses with, a, cursor, uh, with a, a sensor on his glasses and he had the screen with the alphabet and this little cursor ticking across the alphabet. And when he wanted to spell a letter he would twitch his right eye and that would be one letter. So to speak live to him, it would take maybe 10 minutes for him to write out a, a sentence, which creates a very interesting rhythm. And as someone that like has verbal diarrhea, I was just like <laughs> making a complete tool of myself. Um, but what was interesting is from that meeting, firstly, he was generous. He had read the script um, and what you and I was worried because it was a bit too close to filming I'd managed to f- find all of this footage and but I was like what if a total curveball is sent and and I, and I don't know how to to land that um but the thing that was overwhelming was how much charisma was emanating from a man that was almost paralyzed and but also that that within stillness there was actually a huge amount of movement and 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 that that thing that just he radiated of of wit and optimism and also kind of i always described it as being like the court jester you know how in shakespeare you have the person that is the, you know, the Shakespearean fool who appears sort of funny and joyful but is actually incredibly perceptive and there to, to, to spear this, uh, the situation, there was that quality to him that just emanated. And so actually it ended up being really important. But then when we were filming... I was talking to Jessica Chastain about this last night because the, the, the character she plays in The Good Nurse, Amy Lochran, an amazing woman, was present on set a lot. And there's that moment when you're doing it and then you. I, when I was doing Theory of Everything and I it was a big scene and I suddenly heard that Stephen was at the monitors and your sort of heart leaps into your esophagus. And you kind of go, <laughs> oh
0: God, oh God. Anyway. Well, and the, the cap to that story though, the cap to that story is that when he did see the finished film he made a gesture that was quite a clear sign of approval right
1: well I never forget the moment when I when he was about to watch the movie and he was at working title in London the producers in London and and he was about to go in and I was actually rehearsing the Danish girl upstairs in this building and I went down to see Stephen I was like ah, oh, you know very nervous Stephen you know I hope you enjoy the film you know let me know what you think. And he spent twenty minutes typing out this phrase. And he said, um, "I will let you know what I think, good or otherwise."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I said, "Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. If it's otherwise, can we just stick to otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> like I don't need the to- <laughs> whole."
0: Anyway, he was very generous yeah. and and loaned his allowed you guys to use his. The patented voice Voice, that he used from his machine. Yeah, that was
1: the difference. Of that was was quite an emotional
0: thing. So, you go from that to start on a movie that would not have been financed were it not for the fact that Theory of Everything turned out so incredible because you'd been involved, you'd been pursuing the Danish girl with Tom Hooper back. To back in the days of Les Mis, when you years earlier, um, but in the midst, so theory of everything, people start seeing it. I think it was Telluride or Toronto and Toronto. I remember everybody was from the minute they saw it, this is one of the great performances you'll ever see. I guess now Danish Girl gets off the ground, you start filming it in the middle. Or, or start prepping and then filming. In the middle of which, you had a, probably about six months of nonstop picking up awards everywhere you went, and be, you know, just going around the world, receiving very well-deserved acclaim for the theory of everything. I remember that's when I got to first meet you and cover you, and seeing you, I think, really be thrown into the deep end of a of a whole different. Um, side of the business that very few people ever get to experience. Just as you look back at that period when sort of leading up to the Oscars and then literally going back to work, I believe, the next day on The Danish Girl, which was an, you'd get another nomination for the next year, but just that that kind of a, what has to have been a, a whirlwind uh, of a period.
1: Yeah, whirlwind is, is the word, Scott, but it, it was interesting because... I definitely felt a sense when I was being cast in Theory of Everything or when I got cast that it was like, are you financeable? Like, are you... My week with Marilyn was Michelle's movie, um, Les Misérables. <laughs> Did not need me to be in it <laughs> to, to sell a ticket, you know. And and so, um, I could feel that sense of like, is anyone going to w- watch this? And obviously, Stephen was the star of 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 that film. But Felicity and I went on a whirlwind tour to try and get people to to see that movie, and it was uh, it was a thrilling experience. It was like suddenly I've gone from. I remember coming back to Los Angeles and overnight, going from sleeping on, you know, or sharing rooms with old buddies, trying to go for work and auditioning for things and never getting a job, to suddenly you're staying in a beautiful hotel and and nothing's changed in you other than the alchemy of a part and a film and something going right, you know. And but suddenly you'll give you get to meet go to these events and meet some of your you know the filmmakers you've admired the actors you've admired the whole the whole thing um was a sort of a blur um but it was extraordinary like really extraordinary and um and I I look back on it with great fondness
0: and I guess though the in some ways the thing that I remember I think it was Peter Jackson had also said when he was going through that with Lord of the Rings and uh you know the thing that kind of helps to keep you sane is that you're, during the the days or whenever you can find a minute, still actually doing the thing that got you there in the first place, which was, in this case, the, you know, obviously acting, but also specifically now the part of this uh, Lily Elba, the transgender woman in the first decades of the 20th century in The Danish Girl, which we'll note, it came out at a time, this was 2015, Transparent was new on TV, Laverne Cox, Caitlyn Jenner, this was a subject that, topic that, um, I think American society at least was beginning to talk about and look at for the, for the first time in a, in a big way. Um, it's interesting because it seems like everyone was, was blown away by, again, your performance, but you have said in, in more recent times that you have, Conflicted feelings about that one. What's why is that? So I was given the script of the Danish
1: Girl while Tom and I were making Lemperob. He gave me Lucinda Coxon's script, and I didn't know anything about Lily. And I just read the script, and I thought it was an extraordinary story. And Tom offered it to me, but then it was very clear that it wasn't financeable, and you know, so I didn't it sort of put it to the back of my mind. Um, it, it then became financeable. And it was then as I was beginning to start prepping it and researching it and meeting trans women and people from the community and, and, and particularly in the in-between, I'd also worked with Lana Wachowski, who was a passionate, um, you know, Lily is one of her icons. And this was for Jupiter for sending. For Jupiter sending, yeah. exactly. Um, and she spoke so passionately about Lily and I introduced Tom and, uh, and Lana. And what became clear my education from Lana was now we're getting quite close to filming it at this point, but like th- this script. So Lily Elba and Gerda had their life. Lily wrote a book called Man into Woman, which was about her experience that some people believe was then slightly edited to, to sort of sell more copies. This is in the 30s. In the 90s, I think it was, David Ebershoff wrote The Danish Girl, which is sort of loosely based on that story, but with characters' nationalities and new characters invented and changed. And then in the 2010-11, Lucinda Coxon, a British writer, wrote... A script adaptation of david 's book that 's an adaptation of and by that point you were so sort of far removed from lily and um and gerda 's story um, or the truth of it that and that 's what I was finding out as I researched, basically again also meeting many women from the, and, and men from the community, and also beginning to see uh, and the, my ignorance of eyes being open to the fact that there were very few trans actors because there were very few opportunities for trans people. And uh, th- that was, uh, there was no one in the public eye that was, I, I did a, a, a workshop at, uh, at the Central School of Speech and Drama for trans actors and I, they said to me, look, you know, we don't go to drama school because there's 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 no um, example of someone who succeeded in this world, and this was just as Laverne was, you know, having success here. So it was, big. and what then happened through the conversation with Lana was like uh, talking about the script was as we were doing research is like, can we shift the script back to something truer? And we went through that process, and we were getting close to filming. We were, f- I thought, finding something, and then. It was too close, and it was decided um, to go back to the original. And so, so that was complex for me, because I was now having to take all the research I'd done and do the best job I could with, with material that I knew was quite far from the truth. Does that make sense? Looking back on it, what, you know, I believe that actors should be able to play anything. I believe in the freedom of like, artistic expression on the one hand, but I also am incredibly aware that many communities and marginalized people have not had a seat at the table in our industry. And until there is more evenness, like every job I take now, I try and weigh that up. I'm going, um, is it appropriate for me to play this part? Will I be able to do that with with the truth? So, so I, I suppose that was my the, the the Danish girl was was my awakening to that.
0: Um, we are almost up to the present, but there are a, a, a different kind of film that you undertook. I think again after Theory of Everything brought you to new levels of of familiarity to the to the public, uh, and that was the Fantastic Beasts. Franchise now three films I believe over six years you're playing this wizard who was expelled from Hogwarts Newt Scamander and this is just a, a I want to ask you about it just from a filmmaking point of view for you to go from you know eight week shoots of intimate character studies which I think was the case with both Theory and and Danish Girl indie projects basically to a CGI large scale, six month shoot, um, you know, acting opposite things that aren't really there. Is it just like learning a whole different, uh, craft or is there, is there, does, does it feel like you're just doing it on a bigger scale?
1: It's trying not to get distracted by the scale and trying to retain the intimacy of that, which at times can be difficult. But, um, the joy was, That I could bring some elements of my process before to that. So, for example, Alexandra Reynolds, who I worked with, helped with all the creatures, like the the interaction with the creatures, and and there'd be a lot of moments in the scripts, particularly some of these sort of humiliating dances that Newt does, that that were kind of like just go for it moments, and, and and we'd work on those. I had a wonderful time working with these films and and that world enticed such brilliant actors. And I particularly our films were often set in different countries and you'd get to work with some of the best German-French actors who were coming in for playing day players almost. The scale was... Unlike anything I've ever seen, and I, it felt like a different golden age of Hollywood that I was never going to witness. And 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 a lot was built, a lot more. Um, you know, Stuart Craig, who um, extraordinary production designer. You, you, a lot more was built than perhaps you'd think. And I feel so grateful to have got to 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 play on that scale.
0: I'll note that you, in the midst of that trilogy, also did another very VFX. Uh, centric movie that brought you back with Felicity Jones from Theory. Uh, This is the Aeronauts in 2019, which was a, a big thing on Amazon as well. Then in 2020, you were part of this, one of the great ensemble casts we've ever seen in The Trial of Chicago 7 for Aaron Sorkin. And I guess just quick question about that, playing Tom Hayden with an accent and with Sorkin dialogue, which is... I, every actor i've ever talked to who worked with him says learning it delivering it is both thrilling and daunting because you don't put a pause where it isn't intended to be with uh with Sorg and dial just just anything about that one where you're doing again this i guess in in some ways our our eras uh, shakespeare of the screen and theater t- as well um with so many other uh, tremendous actors around you. You
1: know, it was a such a
0: unique and quite brilliant I don't have many things on the bucket
1: list of aspiration and dreams but Aaron was one of them and that film was 16 years in the making I was attached to it for several and it kept there was a moment when I had worked with Michael Buster my dialect coach and was ready to move the family to Toronto and and then I got just just after Christmas and then I got a call from or a text from Michael being like it's so annoying that it's fallen through and I was like what? <laughs> and, and, and that was a film interesting despite that cast that everyday on the film set it felt like it might fall through it was um but aaron has that reputation i adored working with him i didn't i think i i came with all that nervousness i'd actually listened to jessica's an interview with jessica chastain who had done molly's game with him and talking about the difference between the dot 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 you know that what that pause is versus the dot 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 (laughs) dot <laughs> you know and I, and so I was you know, absolutely terrified about it you, know, you know and i'd obviously done my work and learned it but 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 aaron was also interesting having played quite a few real people aaron said to me i want you to play my tom hayden you don't look like tom hayden we're not doing prosthetics and wigs i don't want you to go in like this is my version of him like and that was interesting because i and, and tom I, had passed away already tom had passed away okay. and i've that was sort of Uh, and tom had had a relationship with aaron and that it was a complex um uh thing and but aaron's words are music and and what's amazing about it is is there sort of is only one rhythm um and there was this amazing moment i remember when i was doing a scene a walk and talk with an actor called alex sharp and we were rehearsing it together and as before, we started shooting, and we were running the lines and everything, and it wasn't quite working. And being a massive West Wing fan, I, I turned to Alex and was like, "Okay, let's just try walking down this hotel corridor as quickly as we can and saying the lines <laughs> without breathing, and see what that does." And it worked. Yeah. And it was like it transpires that sometimes you just have to like storm down a corridor uh, and say the words as uh, as fluently as you can. It's
0: awesome. All right. Well, this brings us to the present. This is uh, the movie that you are. Out and about with now that people will be able to see on uh, Netflix on October 26. But can, if you're lucky enough to be here at the Newport Beach Film Festival, you can see it with Eddie. I think it starts at 12:30, and the movie will uh, Q and A will be after that. Got that's
1: in about five minutes. Well, it's guys, far too much time. Sorry.
0: sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just um, this is you're playing a uh, Charles Cullen, a nurse whose arrival at A hospital coincides with a number of suspicious happenings. Uh, I don't want to say too much, but based on a true story chronicled in uh, Charles Graber's book of the same name, this guy you're playing really existed, exists. Uh, How important was it for you to learn about him beyond what was in the script? This This was sort of going back to Theory of Everything
1: in the sense that it was... Amy Loughran's story, the character that, that Jessica plays, um, and she was a massive part of the making of this film. Um, it was also being made by a man called, a phenomenal director called Tobias Lindholm, who often tells true stories. They're often fragile stories, and the sort of moral core of... of Authenticity is at, at the heart of, of what he does. Um, so I was very lucky. the the, the script, Christy Wilson Cairns' script, was based on a book called The Good Nurse. The last third of which is um, the story you see in the film. But the other two thirds are rigorous biography of Charles's life, Charles Cullen's life. And this man had a a, a, a very traumatized. Upbringing and did some extraordinary things. He first tried to... He was the youngest in the family. His father died in his first year. He aged... He was abused by one of his sister's partners when he was seven years old, who he tried to kill. He also then tried to kill himself, age seven. Age 15, he was the first one to a hospital when his mother died in a car crash and they had lost her body and um, when they found it, it was completely unkempt. He somehow passed all the psychiatric tests to get into the Navy, where he worked in submarines, and he was bullied there, but he only left the Navy when they found him in a submarine with his fingers over the Poseidon missiles. He then left, decided to go and train as a nurse at the hospital that his mother had died in, where they had been so disrespectful to his mum, and how this man was ever allowed near vulnerable people is is an astonishing thing um but there was so much information there is so much footage of charlie uh he had such a there's this thing that he he's described in the book as looking like a question mark, and he had this very unique physicality, but also that that idea of the question mark was it was about anonymity it was about invisibility and so i worked with alex reynolds again the movement coach i've been working with for years and the wonderful dialect coach michael buster and and finding where what that what that anonymity was um amy lochran the real amy was also a astonishing insight she said look this man was my friend he was kind he was gentle he was self-deprecating he saved my life I only met this other person twice and it was a different human being so there was I had extraordinary um insight basically into him and
0: people will say I mean you just do um I think what you're talking about with working with these coaches manifests itself with uh um Eerie voice and totally. I mean, it's just not uh, Eddie Redmayne we've ever seen before in a in a movie. Which I guess is thank you. I'll uh, take that. It's yeah, cool. yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what um, we try to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, last thing for me is, you know, here we are eight years after the season that of, of Theory of Everything, which again, where a lot of us, uh, a lot of people. Discovered you, or certainly more people did, um, if, you know, maybe they'd seen you before, but this blew it up to a different level. A lot's gone on, as we've talked about, even this year. I mean, we didn't, a lot of us have not uh, had the privilege of seeing you in Cabaret, but this was a giant phenomenon on the West End, and I hope you'll Consider bringing it to Broadway. I love a lot of us would love to see it there. I don't know if anything, any plans in the works, but but just basically, uh, you know, hopefully it's not another seven years before we we do a, a in-depth conversation like this. But just if somebody were to to ask you, you know, what's your state of mind, your outlook, your sense of accomplishment versus what you still hope to do here. Uh, we're talking in. October of 2022 just give us your state of the union
1: (laughs) wow (laughs) um Scott my therapist uh, (laughs) you know doing the Fantastic Beasts movies and working on that scale which I was talking about was, was a wondrous thing but this year cabaret was something that was a passion project of mine that i'd been trying to put together for a long while i did it straight after the goodness and the goodness was creatively galvanizing and reaffirming in a way that i i can't sort of overestimate i got to work with Tobias Lindholm who is consummate and pushed me and i felt like held and trusted to do work outside of my comfort zone and I got to spar sort of intimately opposite Jessica Chastain who I think is one of the greats Um, I left that coming back to London knowing I was about to start rehearsing cabaret and I took myself off to clown school to like to physical theater school in Paris uh to this because I think to this place called Le uh, um for a week or two because I was so thrilled to be feeling uncomfortable and i wanted to keep feeling uncomfortable and go into the rehearsals of cabaret willing to make a fool of myself or push myself to the edge and and then cabaret itself was that experience too so i feel like stunningly creatively satisfied this year and um and and getting to work with jesse buckley who i hope you know one day you know more people will get to see because seeing her perform cabaret on stage every night, I would introduce her on stage and then I would disappear and sort of peek through the curtain to watch her performance. And it was another level. So it it feels like a wonderfully satisfying
0: year. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for all the great work. Thank you for taking the time to do this today. And thank you for coming up to Newport Beach for the Newport Beach Film Festival and this very special Episode of Awards Chatter. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.